0: This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English.
1: Hello, and welcome to David's Book Talk. And you hear my author in the background. He's anxious to get started. He wants to talk about his new book, and it's called John Lennon, 1980 Playlist. His name is Tim English. Hello.
2: Hey, David. How are you?
1: Hi. You you self-published this book. Yeah, I did. And was it harder than you thought to self-publish?
2: Uh, no, um, I've done it, uh, I guess, two times before, so I kind of know the drill with it. Uh, you have to um, kind of replace some of the uh, things that a publisher would normally do, like proofreading and editing, and uh, you have to get that um, you know, uh, independent contractor to do that yourself, and uh, then you got to, you know, there are plenty of people that can help you with. The typesetting and the cover design and things like that. And uh, But other than that, once you know those things, so you have somebody that can help you a little bit. It's just pretty easy.
1: Now, when did this officially come out? When was the first day of, of publication for this?
2: I think it was September 24th.
1: September 24th. Okay, so it's been out for a month and a half now. I so.
2: tried to get it out in front of John's birthday uh, just for PR purposes oh, on yeah. October 9th, yeah. So uh, now we know
1: he we, he died on December 8th of 1980 correct
2: That's right
1: and what what do you is the date that he died is that mentioned in the book I mean what what he was listening to that day do we know what he was listening to that day
2: yeah, interesting question. I mean, uh, one of the things I could never figure out uh, was, you know, his album Double Fantasy, which was his first album in five years, came out on November 17th. Uh, just a couple weeks later, in early December, he's back in the studio again. And I could never, I always thought that was strange. Like, why is he still in the studio when you just put out an album? And in the book, what I try to do in the book is by looking at the music he was listening to, uh, try to jump off from that and tell some stories and give some insights people that, about things they had not have, might not have heard before. But he was working on a song called uh, Walking on Thin Ice, which was a Yoko song that was originally tracked back in the, the sessions in uh, the summer. And the reason they were in the studio, John had uh, heard that uh, a DJ at Peppermint Lounge Club in Manhattan, which was a really hip club of the day, was playing uh, Yoko's uh, double fantasy track, Kiss, Kiss, Kiss. And John was just thrilled with that. He thought it was great that finally... Um, you know the hip cognoscenti of Manhattan were picking up on Yoko's music, and that um, he said we got to get a record out, especially for the discos, for the dance market, and that's what he was working on um, the night he was killed. He was working on the mix. He'd recorded uh, some guitar overdubs in the preceding mm. days, which are really cool, by the way. Now, did you well, did you
1: ever get to meet John Lennon in person? No, no, no,
2: no. I was I was too young at the time. I guess.
1: How old were you in
2: 1980? I was a college student. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you. But,
1: uh, but you were always. Were you always a Beatles fan?
2: Yeah, I was a huge Beatles fan and uh, really thrilled that he was coming back and then, you know, devastated uh, when he got uh, killed just right at, right thereafter. But you asked about December 8th, one of the, and somebody asked me the other day, what's one of the coolest things you found out in your research? And I found out that John was discussing uh, after he did an RKO interview with the Dakota that afternoon, and after they had sort of shut down the interview, they were chatting, but they recorded it, and uh, they mentioned uh, – that they the radio people were mentioned that they were going to do something with Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds and Rock Pile and uh, John they asked you know who that is and he actually didn't pick up on Rock Pile but he knew Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe and he started singing the Dave Edmonds song Crawling from the Wreckage which was popular at that time mm. and I just thought that was really cool that was one of the core little nuggets No, if you right had to home.
1: pick a, a decade of music that you liked the most what would it be?
2: You know, I guess I'd have to go with the 60s, but I, I see the good in the music of all eras. I think the 60s stuff, cliched as it is, um, has really stood the test of time. And it was really of its era, that music. I mean, what I say, great art, of the era, but it also transforms the era. And that's certainly true of some of the great music of the 60s, because you can still listen to it today, and it's still relevant.
1: What, what, I mean, one wonders what John Lennon would think of the music of today.
2: Well, he was, one of the things I bring out in the book, David, he was extremely uh, open-minded and extremely curious about not only music, but sound of all different kinds. I mean, he was into uh, ambient music, and he actually put a lot of ambient sounds on Double Fantasy. Uh, for instance, the um, the uh, airline announcement, uh, departure announcement at the end of starting over, uh, you hear a voice of a flight announcing a flight. Uh, but John was into disco. He was into reggae. He was actually uh, into uh, Bing Crosby, believe it or not, music in really? his parents' time. Yeah. Um, so he liked uh, the new music that was out at the, in 1980, the new, new wave music and punk music, which was really in its ascendancy at that time. John said it's the best era for music since the 1960s, and it's, this is the time for me to come back.
1: Now you are a recognized authority on musical plagiarism. Now, what what does that exactly mean? Songs that you analyze songs and to see if they. I mean, what what does it mean?
2: It, it means I wrote a book called Sounds Like Teen Spirit, which was the first book ever <laughs> on that topic. And if people, you know, people are familiar with the My Sweet Lord He's So Fine case, John Lennon himself got caught up in those cases. Uh, the plagiarism suits a few times, uh, notably over the Beatles song Come Together, which Chuck Berry's publisher sued him because of the similarities to Berry's 1956 song uh, You Can't Catch Me. So mm. that book is just filled with, I'd say about a Maybe a quarter of it is taken up with Beatles-related stuff. I reveal where the Beatles got the riff for uh, I Feel Fine. I uh, talk about where the beginning intro of uh, Revolution came from. And it's a cool... Book, if I do say so myself, because now people, even if it's an obscure R&B track, uh, people, which is the source of both of those, by the way, uh, people can listen to it for themselves and hopefully have one of those aha moments where you really realize uh, you hear the one song, uh, how it influenced the other.
1: I remember, this was a while ago, I, I was listening to a New Jersey radio station and they were, they had a whole hour devoted to misunderstood lyrics and it was absolutely fascinating. People would call up and, and say a lyric that they didn't understand, they wanted to know what it was really saying and, and the people, the, the disc jockey was telling them and I, it was just really utterly fascinating. I, things I'd never heard before, you know.
2: Somebody wrote a book about all those uh, in the credence song, Bad Moon Rising. I think they may have been called the book. There's a bathroom on the right. And that's how people are. <laughs> when you poker these things, it's, fascinating, it's, the it's, right. yeah,
1: yeah, it's yeah. fascinating what people thought they were and what they really are. When you, really, when you go back, when you go back and, and listen to them again and hear what they really are, you're, you're astounded. After all these years, that you, you didn't even have the lyrics right.
2: <laughs> I've heard the song uh, More Than a Feeling by Boston. Uh, Thousands of times I don't know I bought the album When it came out When I was a teenager And I was watching Something about Boston And they printed the lyrics And I had no idea What the hell They were talking about (laughs) That's Song for thirty years, when I was listening to it, and it doesn't really matter, does it? By the way, speaking about my book, uh, sounds like Teen Spirit. The reason sounds like, smells like Teen Spirit rather is in the book, is because of its similarity to. It was based. The riff is based on Boston's uh, more than a feeling. Mm. Of all things, yeah, you wouldn't think Kurt Cobain was a Boston fan, but he was
1: interesting okay. so this book is all about what he what music john liked or in, and people he admired that i mean that's that
2: part of his life in 1980 and the years running up to that. I mean, we're talking about an era where John was out of the public eye, very unusually, for a rock star. He basically, in 19, uh, after his child, Sean, was born on his birthday, October 9, 1975, uh, around the same time his uh, contract with uh, Capitol Records expired in early 1976. So those two things combined, and I think also the, that he might have been a little bit uh, burnt out at that time. He later said that he'd kind of Lost the creative muse on his uh, around the time of his mind games and uh Waltz and bridges album. You see, David, changing the world you know takes a lot out of you, it can make you kind of tired and burnt out. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think after you know uh, 14 years of doing that, being on tour and more being on tour with the Beatles, he needed a rest and uh, well, so
1: people went crazy over the Beatles. I mean, it, you see these old uh, things. Uh, photographs from when they were touring and it's just the people went nuts over them i mean you they must not have had a a moment's peace
2: they said compared to being in the eye of the hurricane in the beatles anthology george harrison said something like well the fans gave their screams but uh, we gave our nervous systems to the whole thing you know we were the focus of it and uh you know i guess it was terrifying at times but um yeah i mean um the popularity uh, is... I think you, w- listen to, you read John's interviews from 1980. The people grasped at something... The Beatles were involved in something momentous. But they don't really... You know, I think people were just really starting to see what a um, an influence these guys were, in, not only in music, but in the world, just as a cultural phenomenon. You know, and you can go back and forth. Well, did they instigate it, or were they just part of it and wrapped up in it, or was it both? But, uh, you know, they changed an awful lot of things in the world, uh, because, changed because of them. I, I've and,
1: often, uh, I often love the song Watching the Wheels. Uh, that's one of my favorite Lennon songs. And I well, always wondered what, it, what the, the song was about. I mean, are you, an, are you an expert on what the songs are about, why they were written, and what meaning they had?
2: Sure. Well, I, I try to, uh, basically what I do is try to research what he was doing. And he, he said that song was about... Watching life, uh, watching what was going on, he said it was mainly about examining his own life. Though, I mean that's kind of where he was at the time. Uh, He said that's the most uh, difficult thing to do, you know. Of uh, you know, he has line line in his song. uh, you know, that I don't want to face it. Kind of talks about some of these issues. You know, he says he want to save humanity, but it's people you just can't stand. You know, and you know, he, he I think watched the song "Watching the Wheels." By the way, in the book, I reveal or speculate or confirm that I think he got that title from a, a Doobie Brothers album. He had the album "Minute by Minute," the 1978 Doobie Brothers album, which contains a song called "Don't Stop to Watch the Wheels." And mm. John had been working on a prototype of "Watching the Wheels called Emotional Wreck prior to that, and in 1979, uh, sometime he changed the title of it and changed the words to Watching the Wheels, uh, so I'm pretty sure he got that title from, of all things, the Doobie Brothers album, but yeah, that was sort of where he was at, As he, that song is kind of his response to the people who w- were saying to him, and there were prominent people, Dave Marsh, the writer, wrote two articles in Rolling Stone while John was in, in exile, if you want to call it that, you know saying, come back, we need you, you know, we need John Lennon, you know, we can't go on. Uh, Trouser Press had a big uh, cover story, that was an alternative magazine of the day, and, you know, come back, Johnny. So, um, yeah, but watching The Wheels was kind of his response to all that. Uh, You know, he was trying to really, I think, get in touch with what the heck uh, his life was all about.
1: How many songs did he write, John Lennon? I mean, do you figure?
2: At or do that you know. time, or, or, or no? Overall,
1: if it's over his whole.
2: Overall, he wrote hundreds. I mean, uh, the the Corps core was, I think, about 135 of just uh, you know Lennon and McCartney songs, and then you've got you know he put out a, at least a solo album a year in uh, all the years after the Beatles broke up up until up through 1974. So you know, there's there's two two hundred songs and. Then, you know, after he died, Yoko put out all his working tapes uh, that he was working on in, in these years where he wasn't uh, uh, releasing music, but he was at home working on music, even though he sort of tried to, you know, cover that up a little bit but when his interviews in 1980, claiming that he got all the inspiration when he, on his, when he went to Bermuda on a sailing trip. Uh, he, there was some of that because he did write a lot of new songs in Bermuda, but a lot of them, such as starting over and... Uh, watching the wheels had been kind of gestating for a few years before that and he completed them uh, once he got to Bermuda
1: right interesting I mean it sounds like you know a lot about the, the Beatles and John Lennon in general I mean you've been studying it for since you were a teenager I guess so you, you do know. I
2: have <laughs> And believe me, if you were, it's a subject of fascination to me. And, you know, I always tell people if you're thinking of writing a book, make sure it's something that, you know, they always say write what you know. Yes, that's true. But write about something you love and something that really turns you on because all of my books re- regard are basically various facts and trying to uh, put some meaning to the facts. But, um, you know, everything has to be fact-checked. And it would be, it would be hard work, David, if you really didn't, love the topic that you were working on absolutely but uh but i do and because i do it's sort of uh, fun even though it is work
1: yeah exactly and you mentioned in the book about um the fact that he liked billy joel did he ever get to meet billy joel
2: no he didn't but he was um he was learning to sail in the spring of 1980 he had a mansion out in uh in uh long island and uh he would go out sailing on uh Uh, his mansion was in Oyster Bay and he'd go out sailing on the bay there and he had heard that Billy Joel had uh, lived out there and if you look at Billy Joel's album of that Year of Glass Houses, he's actually pictured about to throw a rock through, uh, seemingly throwing a rock through the oh, yeah, yeah, glass yeah. house. Uh, but John uh, liked that album. He, he yelled out that, uh, "Hey, Billy Joel, we love your album." You know, he thought he was near his house, so he was yelling out, calling for him. And uh, but unfortunately, the two never did meet. But uh, John was certainly aware of Billy Joel's music, which was very popular that year. While John was recording Double Fantasy that summer, Billy Joel's "So Rock and Roll" uh, to me was number one. For Weeks uh, in the U.S. at that time, John also liked uh, Billy Joe's song uh, "Just the Way You Are," which was a favorite of both uh, he and Yoko's. Is there any
1: music that John loved? Any groups that, or or or, or artists that John loved that you don't? Uh, There's a question for you. Yeah, I
2: mean, <laughs> he he, he liked he liked a lot of different things. I mean, he liked um, he liked something like. Uh, you know, weird soundtrack music. I mean, he liked country music. I mean, I, I, I can't say I don't like it because I'm, I'm sort of some more in that way. I, I try to listen to everything, and I don't really. The one type of music I couldn't connect into was opera, and I'm not really a. Fan.
1: No, me either.
2: Yeah, but uh, but everything else, I was surprised. He liked country music. He asked his assistant to get him a copy of uh, Dolly Parton's 1979 single, Great Balls of Fire. And uh, I also found out in the research for this book, there's very few unheralded John Lennon songs, but he had one on the album Mind Games, which kind of... uh, Uh, people know the song Mind Games but not much else from that album from 1973 but there's a song there kind of a rockabilly Tex-Mex thing called Tight As and John about a year after that album came out he wrote a letter to Waylon Jennings of all people saying, why don't you put this song out as a single? Why don't you record it and put it out? He said, I probably should have put it out, but I never did. Why don't you record it? And I I don't think Will and Jen's ever did record it, but it's kind of, I thought it was kind of amusing that here you have the guy who's the most successful songwriter, most acclaimed songwriter of the second half of the 20th century, is still pitching his songs.
1: (laughs) That is amazing.
2: (laughs) Trying to get people to record his stuff. Does does it
1: seem like he was a very generous man, John Lennon? I mean, very, very kind to other people?
2: Well, I mean, yeah, the I, I, I mean,
1: he was I always about. He was always about peace. I mean, he loved he singing yeah, about I mean, peace.
2: And, and he, he. He. If you read some see some of the interviews with his first son, Julian. I mean, I think they later were it was sad because John was taken away just as they were getting to know each other again. But John yeah. was basically an absentee father in his life, and uh, you know, didn't see his own son for many years. So, you know, um, there's that. But I interviewed uh, someone that was in the studio with. John, excuse me, a few nights before he was killed. And they were there was a New York writer, and he was, you know, he didn't know what he was going to expect. He said, I thought, I thought I might find a burnt out Borgia, as I quote in the book, and, he, he you know, because people thought, maybe, like, where's this guy Ben? He's on heroin, he's on drugs, he's, a, you know, he's a recluse, he's like a rock and roll Howard Hughes. He said, he was nothing like that. He said, it was, he was just so kind and friendly and funny and just exactly what you would expect him to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I found, and these are all anecdotal, and I, you know, I can't claim that I knew him or, But uh, there was a uh, security guard at the record. uh, I'm sorry, the Hit Factory where John was recording in the summer of 1980, and he would escort him up and down through the fans that began to gather outside. And uh, he said that uh, John was just so solicitous of him when he found out that he sang gospel music. John said, "Give me some of your songs. I want to hear it." And then he he did give him a tape. He said John would take the tape around with him and listen to it. So this guy was just a security guard that, you know, a lot of people would never give a second thought to. But John really, you know, asked him about his life and, you know, wanted to help him with his music and really inspired him. So, you know, those are just two anecdotal things.
1: It was. I mean, you can only imagine how much fun it is to write a song and to know you have something special, especially when you put the, you know, the music to it and you have something beautiful. But you listen to some 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 songs that are just absolutely gorgeous and you just you just think how proud you know that to know that your music's gonna be listened to for decades and decades to come has gotta be a great feeling.
2: But you know what's amazing in doing the research? John was very insecure he was insecure that people would be interested in his music in 1980, he'd been away for so long when he decided, to, he uh, cut his demos for this down in Bermuda in June and July of 1980, and then when they got back, uh, they were got in contact with producer Jack Douglas but it was almost like a Mission Impossible thing, they said go out and get on the seaplane, go out to Oyster Bay they gave him an envelope, said for your eyes only, you listen to these nobody else, he said if any, any word Of this gets out, even when they started recording sessions, says if the word of this gets out, it's it's over. We're going to just kill the session. Because he wanted to make sure that he still had it, according to what Jack Douglas said. This is John Lennon. Wasn't insecure. Was not sure he still had it. uh, You know, after. I guess insecurity
1: must run rampant to the music business. I mean, there's got to be a lot of insecurity. I mean, you know, right away you think of Karen Carpenter. But there's so many out there there must have been a ton of people that were insecure
2: well i think any person involved in any type of artistic endeavor has got insecurity don't you
1: yeah and, and you think of these one-hit wonders you listen to some of these one-hit wonder songs i'm thinking of um that albert hammond song about rainy in california whatever the yeah. name of that song is. yeah beautiful beautiful song you know, like why couldn't he write another song just like that this, this is beautiful but i mean maybe it maybe it's harder than i think it is but i mean it's i
2: think he i think he did write some other songs uh albert hammond um but any but, were any of
1: them as he, beautiful as that one though
2: i think he i'm going off the top of my head i think he co-wrote the air that i breathe I really think, yeah and, you know, uh, this is going back to my other book, but uh, The Air That I Breathe, he gets the songwriting credit on the uh, on the Radiohead song Creep, because that song borrowed from The Air That I Breathe by the Hollies, and Hammond and his songwriting partner sued them. So he gets a 10% cut now of Radiohead's Creep. Interesting. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah
1: it's fascinating to 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 learn what who wrote what songs like you know you didn't you never think of people writing certain like willie nelson's written a lot of famous songs but I, you don't always know what i don't always know what they are but i keep hearing you know all these different writers and i think wow i had no idea he, he they wrote that song you know yes yeah,
2: it's, it's pretty cool yeah well willie of course wrote crazy for uh Patsy klein which I, I a lot of people know but maybe not everybody knows um, you know that's probably the most famous case of him with that. He also wrote "Funny How Time Slips Away," which was a hit for other people. The,
1: did fa- they, these songs that you're mentioning are, or did they write the whole song and the the, the music go with it, or just the, the words? Well,
2: Willie, in Willie Nelson's case, he wrote everything. Really? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, and to think of you know the the creation of a song. I mean, it's got to be thrilling when you when you really realize you have something special, something that's really, that really sounds, of course it's, everybody thinks different things sound special, so who, you know, that, that doesn't make it special to everybody, but there's certainly songs that I hear that I just can't get enough of.
2: Well, I think if you listen to how songwriters describe it, including people like John Lennon and Willie Nelson, it's not so much as they uh, create it, but it's, it's already out there, and they're sort of the channel that sees it to fruition. You know, I've heard Willie Nelson say that, and I think John Lennon was the same way. He said sometimes they just come to you. They come to you, and other songwriters have said this. They come to you fully formed, and a lot of times those are the best ones. It seemed like you picked it out of the air. It's not like you Go down and try to write it down. Although you can do that too, you say and the Beatles would do that. I got to write this. You got to have a new single. We need and then go and try to conjure something up. But I think a lot of the great songs just are sort of in the air. If you're attuned enough or open enough, you yeah, you're one of those people who can pick up on that.
1: And John liked the song "Feelings" by Morris Albert. <laughs> you talk about that <laughs> in the book. I mean, of, uh, it's kind of a it's one of those songs that that just sounds so sad and yet. For some reason, it brings out a, a lot of emotion in you.
2: Well, it's funny you pick up on that because people are, find that very amusing because, you know, feelings often when they do these worst song contests, often that ends up on there. But, you know, it all depends what side of the equation you're on. Some pe- people like the song a lot. It was on the charts for a long time in 1975. Um, you know, and John was just. He was just messing around They were making a video A perspective video It never really came out uh, For starting over in the studio One night when they were recording Double Fantasy And as is usually the case The camera guys take forever to set up And there's a lot of downtime. And so uh, they were kind of goofing around Uh, They actually uh, Bootleg tape of John playing a bunch of oldies Which I describe in the book uh, Was recorded that night Uh, It's been around for decades on bootleg But uh, John was sitting at the piano and him and one of the guys started singing Morris Albert's song "Feelings." Probably just as a goof, probably just uh, have some fun. But uh, there it is. And some, somebody said there, there was might outside possibility that might have been filmed. And wouldn't that be cool if you ever? Uh, a film ever surface of John Lennon <laughs> singing feelings.
1: Yeah, that would be cool. Very,
2: very cool. Yeah.
1: You think of the, that Beatles song, Maxwell Silver Hammer. I don't know what I'm thinking of that right now, but it's just it's one of those crazy songs that you know it, it's hard when you start listening. It's hard to stop. It's just a it's I don't know what the the I don't know what the inspiration was for the for the song, but it, it's such an unusual song. What's a song
2: about a guy killing people set to? With a, a silver hammer.
1: no.
2: <laughs> to a very friendly beat, you know? But uh, that song, I remember reading that song, drove John crazy, because Paul insisted on doing, like, 80 takes of it, and, you know, John thought it was like a ditty, I guess. It was just okay. But he, Paul drive the perfectionist that he was, you know, drove them crazy with 80 takes of that. But if you know, if you think about it, uh, Paul and John were so good for each other, If you even going back to their early days, and John had a very abrasive uh, personality. He would often get people mad at him. Often get the other people, like Paul, in trouble. Paul was uh, would sue things over, and uh, you know, and get them out of it. He didn't really mean it. That type of thing. On the other hand, Paul, being a musical genius and a nice-looking guy and popular with the ladies and all that was very self confident and sometimes to the point of arrogance and John was the one person in his life that could uh, really burst his bubble and tell him to cut it out and uh, and Criticize him and his work And he would accept it uh, So they were really very good for each other But on a musical level too Paul more the perfectionist And John always pushing the envelope Always trying to not do what they had done before Always trying to break new ground with things And you know If you listen to the Beatles music A lot of people will Oh Paul was the schmaltz he wanted to do yesterday John was the hard rocker that did revolution Yeah there, I mean there's that side of it But each also had another side to them Paul could do rockers John could do ballads but then when they were working together like during the Sgt Pepper album I mean listen to the piano on a day in a life. That's Paul McCartney playing the piano. Mm. I mean, that really helps to make the song. Without that, it's not the song that we all know and love, is it? Mm-hmm. And uh, you take a song like While My Guitar Gently Weeps, that piano, that figure right at the beginning of it, that's Paul too. Uh, you know, it's, it's a brilliant little thing that you'd barely even think about, but uh, he added a lot to John's music and vice versa.
1: And I... I Paul McCarty's um, C, um, album, Still the Best, which I've, I, haven't, I had it on CD and I played it so much I couldn't even play it anymore. <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, there's just certain CDs that really have a special place in my heart, only because of, I listen to them and I feel good. It's feel-good music. I don't know <laughs> about you, but I love music that makes me feel good.
2: Yeah, that was kind of the greatest hits of his uh, Wings era, and not many clunkers on there. It was all good stuff, as I remember.
1: Oh, yeah, it's it just beautiful music. And, yeah. and, you know, it, it, obviously a genius, a musical genius. I mean, if something ever happens to Paul, it'll, it'll be, there'll be a day or, or a week of mourning, I think, probably. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, Paul is a big part of this story, uh, John Lennon 1980 playlist, because John hears Paul's 1980 hit coming up on the radio in the spring of 1980, and by two separate accounts, um, he 's very taken with the song. Uh, two people that were happened to be driving in a car with him at different times that spring said the same thing that he listened to it and was really uh, thought it was a great piece of work and that might have been one of the things that drove him back in the into the studio that now it was time to come back because you know those guys were always in competition with each other songwriting wise during the beatles years and um, John uh, he gets to Bermuda and he records one of the first songs he's working on is a song called uh, I Don't Want to Face It and if you listen to that it's the guitar figure in it is similar to what Paul plays in Coming Up and the lyrics to it are similar too because Paul said you say you're looking for this or that and John's I Don't Want to Face It is uh, you say you want to do this you say you want to do that almost like they're answering each other and um, uh, Robert Hilburn from the LA Times interviewed John in, in October and he said well, you were you surprised that coming up was so good by the way John liked the studio version of the song which was a hit in the UK where in the US it was the live version mm. But they asked John if he was surprised it was so good he said no how can you be surprised by your brother
1: hmm very interesting. See, I mean, and I it's, there's so many stories you could probably tell. I mean, you do in the book, and you know, uh, and he liked the Rolling Stones too. He was a big Rolling Stones person too.
2: He loved the Well, Stones, Dylan, and McCartney, I'd say they were what he would consider his contemporaries and the people that really I think he considered in his same league, maybe uh, David Bowie as well. Uh, John recorded a strange tape in uh, September of 1979, kind of an audio diary, and he basically slams just about everybody in the music business. <laughs> On the tape, including Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, really? Mick Jagger. Yeah, he called them all company men. That they just did whatever the record company wanted them to do.
1: It doesn't matter what anybody says about Mick Jagger. Nothing phases that guy. I mean, no matter what you say, <laughs> he still comes out of the top. I mean, it, I mean, I don't. He's what in his seventies now, Mick Jagger.
2: Yeah, they're they're pushing eighty. He'll be eighty in. Uh, that's in, crazy. Uh, 20, that's that's 20, crazy, uh, but nothing. Uh, No matter what he does Nobody
1: could ever touch him I mean
2: John John spoke very highly Of the Stones song Emotional Rescue Uh, That album Was the number one album While John was recording um, uh, Double Fantasy But uh, he liked that song a lot He said uh, You know Why don't It's a beautiful song Why don't they give Mick a break He also liked the song Miss You Like everybody else Uh, He heard that on the radio And cranked it up One time But uh, It's funny The Stones didn't play Emotional Rescue live Until I think 2013. <laughs> playing played live for over 30 years.
1: Really?
2: Uh, so yeah, it's allegedly because uh, Keith Richards didn't like it. But uh, as far as uh, you know, I have one incident in the book where the phones were basically partying, doing drugs with John. Uh, John Ronnie Wood told that story in his book uh, around 1978, which was kind of a shocking story, I thought, at the time, you know, John was supposed to have been cooling out and cleaning up, as the song Clean Up Time says, but uh, he hadn't, Forsaken all of his uh, rock star habits, apparently. I found a cool story uh, on the Thanksgiving, the day before Thanksgiving, 1980. John and Yoko were filming for what was going to be a video for Woman, uh, the song from Double Fantasy. John had already, it is, it's really beautiful. I actually uh, talked to the guy who uh, worked on the uh, vocals on that with John. But uh, the the guys who were. when the video said we wanted him to lip sync it, um, you know, like you were singing the song, and John didn't want to. Instead of just walking around the park, and John didn't want to do that. He said, "I don't want to be." He said, "I'm 40 years old. I don't want to be like Mick Jagger prancing around in front of the camera in some stupid sort of <laughs> video." <laughs> So I thought that was funny. It's but, uh, a, it's like
1: a, why are the Stones still alive? You can't even imagine all the drugs that they must have done at some <laughs> point, and they're still going strong. I mean, they can't—they obviously can't tour again at eighty years old. I mean, I, I mean, I, touring—it takes a lot out of you, I'm sure. But I mean, uh, but you know, there's some people you just can't touch. They're just icons in the music business. I mean, Elton John's another one. No matter what he does, no matter what boyfriend he gets, the people don't care anymore. Yeah.
2: Well, I remember the Stones were playing with a bunch of other bands. I think they, it was a benefit after uh, Hurricane Sandy in New York. Uh, this must have been 2012, and they, you know, they were up there. I can't remember all the other, but it was modern bands. And you know, the Stones kicked ass. They, they were as good or better than these guys that were half their age or more. And who wrote and,
1: uh, who wrote most of the Rolling Stones songs? Were they did Mick Jagger write a lot of his yeah, songs?
2: Yeah, Jagger Richards wrote. Uh, ones in the early days they do a lot of chuck berry covers and blues covers but the famous songs that they wrote are all nick and keith uh, and, and uh, as a matter
1: commented. of fact i was just looking at the new rolling stone magazine today the one that has uh, joe biden on the cover but yeah. and there's an article about keith richards and all you see is this you don't even see his face in the picture it's just smoke it's just there's that. just a waft of smoke this part, and you can't even see his face
2: it would be Everything to dress up as uh, for Halloween wouldn't it
1: yeah I mean and yeah. and nobody cares what they look like they they they're just they've just they've they're icons they'll always be icons even after they if something ever happens to them
2: well, you know, I read some a critique of the songs he said you know they did. You know, most of their great work was in the 60s and early 70s, and, you know, I mean, if you're, well, most of their concerts for years have been made up of, of that material, and they've managed to keep it going, though. You know, they've always been a great live band, and, you know, from time to time, they'll put out, they, they, they've they hardly put out new albums of original material anymore, but they've Jagger's managed to keep it going for years and years. Uh, You know, kudos to him.
1: So here's the question. What what is your favorite John Lennon song? Can you pick one that's your favorite, or, or, or would you have to pick two or three?
2: Yeah. Um, I, I, well, you mentioned Woman. That's certainly one of my favorites. I mean, the sad thing about him getting assassinated was he'd really gotten the creative spark back. But
1: well, what is like it about 80. the songs that, you, that that stand out for you? Is, is, it the, is, the, is it the music? Is it the lyrics? Or is you know, it a when combination?
2: John, when John was killed, if you watch the film of people, you know, man-in-the-street type or woman-in-the-street type interviews that they were doing, They all talked about him being a great musician, being with the Beatles, but they also talked about him as a humanitarian, as a guy who was, you know, trying to, uh, talking about peace and anti-war and all that stuff. Almost like it was most uh, as important in the public mind of who John was as uh, his work as a musician. And I think that's true. As people remember him now, I mean, uh, the way he's remembered is, obviously he had a tragic death, but he's remembered as more than just a musician. I mean, this was not just some guy who... He was trying you know, to change the world. Him. He was trying to change the world and in a lot of ways he did. You know, I mean, uh, he was mocked a lot of times for what he was trying to do. It's funny, in, in the book I mentioned that John, in trying to explain where he was sort of at... Uh, politically i guess or you know his social uh, social views he said i'm i like that elvis costello song what's so funny about peace love and understanding that's that's what i believe and i'm paraphrasing that but he did mention the song in context of his beliefs and it's ironic because nick lowe wrote that song back in the early 70s when he was uh uh I'm got to forget the name of his band right now, but uh, Prinsley Schwartz. But he, uh, the song was meant as uh, ironic at the time he wrote it. It was like, hey man, what's so like? He was making fun of hippies, which were very passe in the early '70s. You know, like a hippie would say, "What's well, so funny but peace, love, an understanding, man?" That's how Nick Lowe meant the song. But as the years went by, the song lost its irony, and the way Elvis Costello sings it, that John picked up on, is kind of angry. You know, like saying, "What's so funny about it?" You know, look at the state of the world. And of course, the state of the world hasn't, uh, (laughs) still leaves a lot to be desired, maybe more now than it did in 1980. But um, the song has just gained in relevance and lost its its irony through the years. But you talk about John's songs. I mean, if you listen to a song like Power to the People, listen to Imagine, or listen to... um, you could say, uh, Give Peace a Chance or Give Me Some Truth. I mean, they just put out a John reissue called Give Me Some Truth that Sean worked on remixing some of the old songs. Mm. Those lyrics of those songs are as irrelevant in 2020 as they were in 1970 or Isn't 71 that when he recorded them. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, they could have been written yesterday. Yeah,
1: that's true. And I can't imagine what John Lennon would think of the way the world is today. I mean, you can only imagine what his thoughts would be on that. Now, you mentioned in the the book about the Doobie Brothers, they had some kind of influence on double fantasy songs. what's, What's up with that?
2: Well, the song uh, we mentioned earlier, their album, uh, Minute by Minute, which had Waterful Believes on it, uh, they, ha- they did a song, this is 1978, uh- John had a copy of that album because he'd asked his assistant to get it for him. I was, trying to, kind, of, I was kind of surprised that John was interesting, was listening to a Doobie Brothers album, but he was. And uh, they had a song on there called uh, uh, Don't Stop to Watch the Wheels. I think that phrase oh. went in the title to Watching the Wheels. It's funny, though. John, uh, of course, Michael McDonald was uh, in the band at that time. John also loved Christopher Cross, who, you know, I think a big part of his success with Ride Right with the Wind was Michael McDonald uh, singing with him on that. Christopher Cross
1: had some beautiful songs, Sailing and that, and the the theme from Arthur, which I thought was... Tremendous.
2: He was huge in nineteen eighty. I mean he had a his career trajectory was where is much, he today? <laughs> he's still doing his thing. He hasn't had a hit in many years, and after Arthur's theme and a couple others, uh, he was not never to revisit the charts. But he uh his I wonder
1: album, why. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that happens to artists where they have they have years where they have tons of big hits and then nothing?
2: Well, it wasn't, wasn't for years, and I think Christopher Cross got it, too. The Grammy uh, Best New Artist was like a curse of death.
1: <laughs> yeah. oh, I forgot
2: that. Their career failed uh, right after. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just time, timing, I think. Uh, you can't... Uh,
1: the wonderful argument. thing about Christopher Cross's songs is the beginning of them. The beginning of them is so beautiful. I mean, There's just a beautiful riff in the beginning of his songs, which I, I really find... And even to this day, when I hear him on the radio, I stop and listen because I I can't help myself.
2: Well, John Lennon was a big fan of his song, Sailing, which was the number one hit in the summer of 1980. And that's a beautiful song, and it doesn't really sound like any other song, does it? And John... You know, his he went on a sailing trip. Him and a small crew sailed out of Newport in early June of 1980 for, for, for Bermuda. It was about a week-long journey, and and in that time uh, there was a very bad storm, really a life-threatening storm with huge waves. Everybody was sick, so it's left to the ex beatle to take the wheel of this fairly small boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, John was familiar with was, had a history of sailing because his father was a merchant Seaman. Oh, and Seaman, John is out there steering this thing with all these waves, and really a life-threatening situation. And John later recalled he was kind of screaming at the gods and singing old sea shanties to get through it. But by the accounts of several people who knew him, once he got that was a really a life-changing, very profound experience, and it seemed to get him in touch back with the real person that he was pre-rock star, pre-fame, uh, pre-Beatles, and really connected him. Like kind of finding himself again and once he gets to bermuda he's completely re-energized and starts immediately recording gets a couple of boom boxes and would double up the tapes so that's how we recorded them uh and uh, starts recording the demos for all the songs that ended up on double fantasy and milk and honey
1: your your love for music really comes out i mean just talking to you, i can hear the excitement in your voice how much you love music
2: Yeah, I do. I love John, I love the Beatles, and and really just about all...
1: See, I, I can see music, especially the 70s music, got me through a lot of hard times and still does today. When I'm, when I'm sad, a lot of times I'll turn it on and it'll make me feel better. I don't know why. And even sad songs like feelings will make me feel better. I don't know why that is. I don't know well, why a sad song would make me feel better. You think it would depress me.
2: Well, they say that about the blues, don't they? You know, like you get a blues song going, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm broke and my baby left me. and uh, <laughs> exactly. you know All the, all all the <laughs>
1: depressing things in life could bring. And, and you're feeling good about this? <laughs> it uh,
2: makes you feel good. Well, they say you sing it out, you know. You sing out the blues, you know. You get When you sing about them, you get rid of them. So uh it does uh, uplift you but I agree I mean I you know I like Different types of art, but to me, music is the most uh, moving and profound and touching and and why it does what it does to us, how it touches our heart and our soul the way it does is a mis- is a mystery you know why does it why does the e chord sound sound not sad, but the E minor chord does sound sad you know i mean that i don 't know why that is, but it just is, and we 're all sort of wired that way where we respond to these things, and music can really uh, Can really move people, uh, you know, when it's done by a great artist.
1: One wonders what John would have done had he lived. I mean, this is the four, we're we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of his death, which it's hard to believe. I can't believe it's been almost 40 years. It's just, uh, it blows your mind when you think about it.
2: He's been gone for as long as he was around now.
1: I wonder what he thought of Elvis Presley
2: he loved Elvis he was he was the world's biggest Elvis fan really he, uh, oh yeah he, uh, he made a lot of references to Elvis uh, uh, during um, uh, 1980 and uh, he even sang a couple of Elvis songs during the uh, Mind Games sessions and uh, he had tons of Elvis songs on his uh, his jukebox in, uh, at the Dakota well, but
1: you wonder it makes you wonder what was it about Elvis that made him such a phenomenon More than anybody else.
2: Think about the world of 1955, when everybody first heard Elvis. I mean you know, it was all buttoned down. It was black and white. It was conservative. You know, conformity was what was expected of people. And here comes this alien kind of guy with <laughs> eyeliner and greasy hair out of Memphis singing basically black music. I mean, he was a, a, like a freak. And John, as all young kids loved him, just as the adults hated him. And he's swinging his hips around too, which was caused a lot of scandal at that time. Exactly, so he, yeah. If you're a teenager at that time, and hey, Listen to the music. I mean, Heartbreak Hotel, I mean, I hear that song. I, I see the dark, lonely street in my mind, you know, where the broken-hearted people are going to the hotel. I mean, he just, uh, he just had a certain something, didn't he? John would say Elvis was the complete package. He had it all.
1: Do, and, you, have, do you have most of John Lennon's albums?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I don't. I can't say I have two virgins and uh, and a life with the lions and some of the experimental ones. But uh, so what, what a
1: typical else. day, what music do you listen to? Say today. What what have you listened to today? Oh, uh,
2: haven't been listening to too much music today. But um, j- well, later.
1: Day. Let's go with lately then. I,
2: I I like um um I like to listen to um different sort of streaming stations. I like to listen to KCRW out of L.A. They play a lot of kind of new music. Um, I like to listen to uh, a station in Jersey called WFMU, which is a really cool station, and their DJs are just musical experts. They play the most cool, obscure, not all obscure, but just good music. Typically I'm listening to something. I might be listening to one of their shows. Um, and I don't know, just uh, like uh, jazz on a Sunday morning, that type stuff. stuff uh, you know it depends on it depends a on wide way. variety of things
1: nothing nothing in particular
2: yeah I don't like to get stuck into one thing I mean but what do you think of Adele I like Adele yeah yeah I, I think she's, she's got Saturday some beautiful Live songs and, yeah Yeah, she does and she's one of the most successful artists right now somehow her and Taylor Swift has figured out the formula where people still buy their albums instead of just stream them
1: Right, I, mean, I just don't like a lot of no. I don't like songs that are just a lot of noise, and I can't understand what the song's about. That bothers me. Like, I have to admit that does bother me. But I mean, we, a lot of, and a lot of Kiss songs are like that. There's just a lot of loud noise. But then they then they come up with a song like "Beth," I and mean, where did that come from? <laughs> that beautiful song.
2: Yeah. Well, well you, you sound like your parents saying that, though. They say if it's too if it's too loud, you're too old, David.
1: <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe so. I, I mean, I, I like what I like. I like the music that makes me feel good. I need I need songs that make me feel good.
2: Well, you know, it is actually, and I point out in the book that I, John used the music of his. Uh, his teenage years as a touchstone through his life, Jerry Guglielmo, Elvis, Little Richard, I mean, all that stuff.
1: Well, what, uh, was, he, John's, what was John's childhood like?
2: It was not too good. Um, his father was never around. He was a merchant seaman, always away. Uh, his uh, mother, uh, I remember the whole story, but his mother at one point gave him away to her sister, which was John's... Uh, And Mimi, his mom Julia gave gave him to uh, uh, really yeah her sister to raise. So that well that goes back to his song Mother, where he says uh, Mother, you had me, but I never had you. And then he says uh, uh, Daddy, come home, Mama don't go. Daddy, come home. It's
1: so we get to see a lot of the struggles he was going through through his music.
2: Yeah, and then and then as time went on, his stepfather died suddenly, and then his mom. Uh, Julia, who he was just reconnecting with. Julia was the one who taught him to play the guitar, which a lot of people don't know. She was kind of a free-spirited uh, woman and uh, but very funny. In fact, there's an interview that uh, Sean Lennon did on the BBC just in a few weeks ago where he interviews Julian Lennon, Elton John, and Paul McCartney, all about his dad. But in that interview, it's very touching because Sean of course never knew his grandmother, Julia, who died uh, in 1958, I 70 rate, I think it was, and uh, he's asking Paul about her, and Paul said, well, you would have loved her. She was very, very funny, you know, and it's just very touching to hear Paul telling John, oh, John about they? that. Yeah, I'd recommend that interview to you and everybody else. But uh, so, but his stepfather died, and then Julia herself was hit by a car, and uh, and she died. So, John so had he had their, a lot of sadness in his life. It's terrible. Uh, and you know, he basically was kind of abandoned by both of his parents and then his uh, his his stepfather died and his real mother died just as he was reconnecting. So John, you know, he said in the song I, I cry and I got a chip on my shoulder and you know, he did. But, you know, Paul McCartney would say He, underneath all that, which is, you know, John would say everything's the opposite of what it is, isn't it? That was one of his favorite uh, sayings. So he was on the outside. He was a tough guy and really had a biting sense of humor. When, when they did the Ruddles movie of the Beatles parody with the Monty Python uh, with Eric, uh, Eric Idle in the 70s, the John quote-unquote character who was called Ron Nasty. And <laughs> there's a reason for that. John could be a very nasty guy with how he would cut people down with his comments. But I think a lot of it was, you know, kind of bravado because underneath he had been suffered a lot, of, uh, a lot of hurt when he was young
1: yeah interesting, well, we could go on forever and ever. I mean, you're just so fascinating them i mean, I mean the, and your knowledge of music is, is just amazing and and I, I this is the first time I've ever, ever talked to you And I can see it, I can hear it in your voice, how much you know and love music so much. Well, I try
2: to, you know, when I do a book, I've only done three, and I try to do a book that I'd like to read myself, and John is a guy that's just so much has been written about that it's a challenge, I think, for any writer to bring something new to the table. I mean, when I, a lot of times when I'll look at a book that comes out about John or the Beatles, it's... It's, it's interesting if you get a first person account sometimes but so much of it is just stuff that's been recycled that you've heard a million times before so I tried to give people a, sort of a different way of looking at, uh, of, at this artist and by looking at the music that he was listening to you know what can we tell about him from that how did some of these songs like we've talked about really uh, they actually impacted his life uh, during 1980
1: well, you know? what, were, what was the relationship between Palmer mccartney john lennon when he died
2: well uh paul mccartney said that they had a rapprochement and they were getting along better uh they hadn't seen each other i'm thinking about four years almost five years by the time uh that uh john was killed um but you know if we look into this there's an interview with and, and john said some things i think in the newsweek interview they asked him about paul uh, and he said, um, you no, know, he used to come around with the guitar. I told him, hey, we're not 16 anymore. Don't come around without calling. Kind of brusque and not very nice. Yeah, really. and, uh, but it's an interview with Paul McCartney from Good Morning America of Thanksgiving Day, 1980. And, you know, you can tell there's still tension in the air. I mean, they asked him about John's interview, where I believe it, where he had said that. That was already out at the time. And uh, he said, well, I hear, I don't know why he says these things, but I just... Shut up now! I don't say anything because I don't know how he's going to take it. So there was still some tension in the air. But as I said earlier, I mean, when uh, in, when that conversation he had with Robert Hilburn, he called Paul, his brother, uh, on the on the late afternoon of December eighth. John was in the car with the people from RKO Radio going to the record plant, and they sort of kept They asked him about Paul, and he said, "How are things with you guys?" And he said, "Well, you know." You know how families are. We have our problems. We have our fights. He says, but underneath it all, he says, we're, we're like brothers. He said, uh, this, I'd do anything for him, and uh, and uh, I know he'd do anything for well, me. Well, that's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah it is.
1: It's sure always nice, nice. When, when people that don't get along make, sort of make up.
2: they you thank know, I- they sang it didn't they life is very short you just no don't you don't know i mean
1: yeah if you fight with somebody they could be gone tomorrow and you just never have it you would never have a chance to get to make and you know the, that feeling that guilt would just can overwhelm you
2: true and uh when I mean, i've lost people in my life i remember thinking one time i said i'm glad for all the fights we didn't have i'm glad and then look I'm how
1: afraid. good you feel when you actually tell people how much like, you care about them i mean it's such a great feeling
2: yeah, I mean yeah. It, it,
1: it's such a it's such a, a releasing feeling it just it just releases so much love and I mean don't we all need love today yes <laughs> and, we do in big in the big way you know and and that's something that John was talking about before he died and he'd still talk me talking about it today if he were alive we know that I mean obviously it, it, it was important to him that people yeah. love one another
2: yeah well, he said, as uh, I said, quoting Elvis Costello, he said, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Right, That's exactly. what it's all about.
1: So who do you tackle next? Are you going to tackle somebody else in another <laughs> book? I mean, who, who, who's the next victim, shall
2: we say? <laughs> I'm going to tell you a funny story. And I've, uh, Sometimes I share this with people when they say, what's your next project? Do you
1: get tired of being asked that question? No, no,
2: I don't get tired of it, but there's <laughs> a lot of work and thought and effort that goes into these, and you're actually years of work. you know. And uh, there was a story about the band leader, Artie Shaw, who at one time was one of the most famous people in the yes. country. He barely remembered today, I think. But he lived a long time. He put down his clarinet. He didn't record it all, and he retired after the 1950s. Uh, Uh, And years later, he was at some event, this is during the 80s, I think, in in Washington. And a lady comes up to him and says, Mr. Shaw, you're retired. He said, aren't you ever going to put out any more music? Aren't you ever going to record again? (laughs) Artie Shaw said to him, Madam, when I was active for many years, he says, I've made over 50 albums. Have you purchased all those albums? And she said, oh, no, I don't think I have. It's okay. Well, you go out and purchase them, and you come back, and then you ask me what, what when I'm gonna record again. Wow! I thought that was I thought that was such a funny uh, answer to give. So,
1: yeah, like she I didn't don't. even know there were fifty albums. <laughs> like... Yeah, I
2: know, I know. <laughs> That's too. But, but you know, he had a, he had a point that he. And Artie
1: Shaw married somebody famous, didn't Ava he? Gardner, Ava Gardner. Ava Gardner. I knew it was somebody. One of those uh, beautiful actresses.
2: And since you're uh, just uh, totally off the subject and everything, you, you asked asking me what I was listening to. I'm reading a book uh, by Peter Evans called uh, Ava Gardner, The Lost Conversations, and it's uh, so oh, far interesting. quite interesting. I'd recommend that to anybody, any Ava Gardner fans out there.
1: And I remember when she was on Knot's Landing. Isn't that weird that I remember that?
2: I didn't even know she was on Knot's yeah, Landing. Yes, she
1: actually appeared on that soap opera, Knott's Landing at one point. And I don't know, I, she wasn't all that long, I don't think. Maybe 10 episodes or something, but I know yeah. she I remember her being on and thinking, why would she do a soap opera like that? But you know what? You can make they made some money back then. You know, even even actresses need to make money.
2: Was Elena Turner on one of those too, I think, who was Yeah, she might have been on Dallas. She am not involved sure and a lot of uh I'm not, what, they, it, they knew each other I'm I don't not think even it
1: was sure. Dallas, but it 's not important as anyway yeah there was but. there was something <laughs> she was on yeah but I, that,
2: uh. Yeah, they were sort of uh, contemporaries. Well, now we're going to have to look it up. Guys <laughs> like that. Well, it's poignant because she was, you know, she had had, a, a, at the end of her career, a woman who was, was uh, really one of the great Hollywood beauties, wasn't she? And here, in these interviews, she's kind of at the end of career, coming to terms with old age and things like that. So it's kind of poignant.
1: It is, and it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the world continually fascinates. So there's no doubt about that. And every day there's something fascinating. Not always great, but you know, at least you, at least it's interesting. <laughs> it's been yeah. it's been so great to talk to you, Tim. It's, I mean, you've just we've almost been talking an hour, which is wonderful. The book again is called John Lennon 1980 Playlist. Now we need to talk about where people can get it. Besides, they can get it from Amazon, right?
2: Yeah. Where yeah, else probably. Can, Probably your best bet. You can get it, uh, you know, other book sites, wherever we usually get books. Is it in any bookstores at all? Yeah, it's in bookstores. I mean, uh, you know, people are aware of it, and they order it in.
1: Okay, it that's sure. good. well, it's good to know in case somebody's passing by a bookstore right now, they can just walk
2: in and get it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to expose yourself to COVID by going in the store, you know, go for it. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I hope somebody goes into a bookstore. I mean, I hate the thought that nobody would ever go to a bookstore again. That's hey, be uh, very I upsetting.
2: I know it is. Well, we don't have we don't have record or CD stores anymore. They've gone the way of the buggy whip too. And I, I think bookstores are going. But hang you
1: know there. what? There is right down the street from me. There's a there's a place that a guy used to work with at the bookstore. He has his own record store. Really? And, oh yeah, and it's called Electric Avenue, and he has a blast with it. It's just a really small store, but he has a certain number of customers, and, and he's got some old stuff and lots of CDs and, and some. Eddie Grant, wasn't it, Electric Avenue? yeah yes exactly yeah. but and he's it, you and he 's very very knowledgeable about music yeah. i mean to uh, amazing knowledge so i mean, i just I, you know and, and people will people respond to that people respond to the old days and they 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 like that kind of stuff.
2: Well, it's amazing. You know, you talk about John and the Beatles. I mean, uh, they lit up Empire State Building for his 80th birthday a couple weeks ago. Did they really? A beautiful tribute, yeah. And, you know, if you look at the most streamed groups on Spotify, one of them is the Beatles in the top ten, a group that that hasn't played a note in over 50 years. I mean, it's just an incredible uh, impact, incredible legacy that they leave, you know. And
1: how old is is, um, Yoko Ono now?
2: Yoko was born in 1932, her her, uh, birthday's in February, so she will be 90 in uh, a year and a half. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and she's not in very good health from what I've seen from reports now. But,
1: um, yeah. By 90, you're lucky to be alive.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you are.
1: Well, that's great. It's been great, a lot of fun. And uh, everybody go out and buy this book, John Lennon, 1980 Players. Thank you so much.
2: Hey, it's been my pleasure, David. Thank you.
1: And this has been David's Book Talk, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover, David English. Please visit us at davidsbooktalk.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scodellini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci.